Yesterday we had an interesting little incident. We're sitting in the, the family room, Susie and I are talking about some things, and the boys, one of them's in the bathtub, the other one's just outside the bathtub, and they're playing with toys and doing things, and you know how boys are. And, and pretty soon, one of our, our two comes running out into the family room, carrying a cardboard box. And, and we look at the cardboard box, and there are suds all over the box. There were some bubbles going on and, and things like that. And he says, look, Mommy and Daddy, it's a boat. It can float. Now, the weird thing about cardboard is cardboard was not necessarily designed to go into water or to be full of water. And he's shaking it around, and it is soaked, and it is falling apart, and the bottom's coming out, and water's all over the carpet, and all over the tile, and it's just a mess everywhere. And, and Susie's running, and steps on the cat, and, and it just, it was that moment of, uh, now some of you are happy about the cat thing, don't be. <laughs> it, it was just a, 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 a hilarious moment that <laughs> was one of those family memories. But I want to dwell on the cardboard box for just a moment. Probably, where is he going with this? The box, the reason it can't, it, it can't float or hold water for very long is because water permeates cardboard. It gets in and it soaks into it and pretty, pretty soon the cardboard's like, and it just, it just falls apart because water has permeated all of it and if water's holding inside, it just starts to spill out all over everything. And this morning, as we, we look at the next text in Mark, we want to talk about the, the dilemma or the, the conflict between self and the gospel. And when we think of self, it's like that cardboard box and water. Self and our commitment to self and our, our, the, the way that self affects our decisions and our actions permeates every part of ourselves. It goes back to the fall and it goes back to the heart being desperately wicked and we are born with a sin nature. Self is, is part of our old man. It permeates everything we do, whether we know it or not. And self, when that happens, also spills out on everything, doesn't it? When, when, when we make decisions based on self and our own ideas and when we, when we um, do things that elevate self and glorify self, it just spills out all over everyone. And whereas the carpet was pretty easy to clean up and the tile, when we do that around us, it just it affects people's souls and it affects their lives. And that's where we come to today. Last week we looked at Peter and, and this grand moment where Jesus heals the blind men in a two-stage healing to show that the disciples are in process and in stages of learning. And Peter has his eyes open to where he can dimly see. And he says, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And it was a moment of revelation, a moment where the eyes were opened. And, and we know from the Matthew passage that Jesus affirms that, it says, you're Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And then we get to today, probably not that far removed I think probably as they're walking from that location and they're walking along starting to make their way to Jerusalem and Jesus is walking with His disciples and teaching along the way 
And we come to today's passage where Peter and the disciples take that grand moment of revelation and it is completely overwhelmed by self. By self. And Jesus deals with it. And we can learn much about self or the Gospel this morning. The conflict between the two and how that works out. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 will be in verse 31 this morning. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And as we go, I want to give some points that we want to pull out about self and this conflict between self and the gospel. And, and so the first point there, and we'll, 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 I'll give it to you before we read it, so you, as we read it, you can be seeing where that's coming from. God's plan often frustrates us because He has the ultimate perspective and we don't. God's plan often frustrates us because He has the ultimate perspective and we don't. Let's start reading at verse 31. And He, being Jesus, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And He said this plainly. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Just after the revelation, we see that it was an incomplete revelation. And as we dig through this passage, a couple of things to note. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, and that's a a term that Jesus, it's his favorite term to use of himself, his favorite title that he uses of himself. And literally, it could mean just that this human being. But, but the term Son of Man had a lot more weight to it, a lot more meaning behind it when Jesus used it, and the Jews would have understood that. See, Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Mark alone uses it 14 times of himself. And he uses it in, in, in three different ways. He uses it at first to show his authority. And we've seen that a couple times where he used Son of Man to show that he had authority over um, to forgive sins. That he had authority over demons. And now in this middle section of Mark, we're going to see him use Son of Man and it's always associated with suffering. The cross. And then at the end, we see the Son of Man associated with, with the Messiah. But really, all of it's about the Messiah. And just hold your finger in the Mark passage and flip over to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Because this was not a new idea. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. We see one of Daniel's visions... It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And the the Jews would have been very versed in prophecy, and in Daniel, there came one like the son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so we see in prophecy the term Son of Man is used, and it's used of Jesus coming to establish His kingdom, the Messiah. 
No wonder the Jews, I mean, it's just one of many passages of why they expected the Messiah to come in power, to come and kick the Romans out. Finally, justice, a little bit of revenge. But that's not how he came. But in the Daniel passage, we see the Son of Man is a term that is used of the Messiah, the one that will come and make things right. The one that will come and set up an everlasting kingdom. But here in Mark chapter 8, flip back to Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus uses the word Son of Man, which they're thinking everlasting kingdom or power. And the very next thing is he put, he lays out his plan, what Jesus' plan looks like. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Their idea of the Messiah, conquering king. Jesus' plan, suffering, rejection, death, and oh yeah, resurrection, which they didn't understand yet. And so the disciples hearing this would have been like, are you nuts? This isn't what we signed on for. This isn't what we expect. This isn't what the Messiah is about. And they begin to get frustrated because God's plan was different than theirs. His idea, Jesus' idea of what should happen, and not just an idea, His plan, His sovereign plan, was the cross. And the disciples' sovereign plan, not sovereign plan, sorry, was a palace. Notice a couple of other words as you look at verse 31. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man, see the next word? Must suffer many things. See, the the cross is a necessity. It wasn't a luxury. Without the cross, we have no salvation. Without the cross, there is no hope of an eternity with Christ. Without the cross, we are not here together. Without the cross, we are not adopted sons and daughters of the King. Without the cross, there's nothing. And so Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. See, on the cross, He took our place. Without the cross, our sins are not paid for. The penalty has not been served, and we still owe it. They didn't get that. They didn't understand that yet, and so they're just thinking, where's the palace? Kings don't suffer. They're not rejected. They're not killed. And whatever you mean by resurrection... And so Jesus is laying out a plan that frustrates the disciples. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Three groups there, and just just by way of understanding what Jesus is doing, those are the three groups that make up the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the high court that tries Jesus and convicts Him and sends Him to death. And so this is... Not just, oh, these are the people that don't like me. This is part of prophecy of how he would die and what would happen. This is amazing that Jesus would say this before his death. The elders were the lay members of the Sanhedrin. The older men that were respected and were considered part of that group. The chief priests would have included the high priests, past and present. It would have included their families. The scribes were the teachers of the law. We've seen them. 
experts in Mosaic law. There were Pharisees that were scribes. There were Sadducees that were scribes. And so all these groups formed together to make this high court. And Jesus says, they're going to reject me. They're going to convict me, and they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. And the disciples are reeling because they don't get it. They don't get the plan. They're frustrated. Maybe some of you don't like surprises. Maybe some of you, if, if you're going somewhere and you don't know where you're going, you're just angry. <laughs> Anyone like that? A few of you, yeah. Thank you for being honest. Imagine what the disciples were feeling. This isn't right. What are you doing? Note at the end of verse 31, there's hope in this prophecy. And they don't get it. They don't dwell on it. We're going to see that in in future verses, they still don't get it. And after three days, rise again. And they probably were thinking, well, yes, resurrection is going to happen at the end of time. And but, but Jesus says, no, after three days, I will rise again. Look ahead, chapter 9, verse 10, just on the next page. See where the disciples were at, because he again talks about this. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Okay, so, so they don't understand that part of it. And they were caught in a paradox. Why the cross? Praise God for his plan. Praise God that Peter's plan isn't the one that Jesus followed. That he didn't say, oh, you know what, Peter, you're right. Okay, let's change. Praise God. Because, see, God had a bigger purpose in mind. His purpose wasn't just to rescue Israel at that point in time. His purpose was to provide salvation for all who would come to him of all time. Bigger? Grander? More important? Absolutely. But the disciples' perspective was like this. And God's perspective is like this. This weekend, college football started. And this week, I guess the NFL starts as well. And, and it's amazing watching some of these long run backs. Some of you are tuning out already. You're like, football, really? Some of you are like, oh, this is great. Um, and, and if you see some of the long kickoff run backs where a guy takes it 100 yards, and, and some of the camera views they have now, they have these floating cameras on cables that you can see what the players are seeing just about. And you, and you look down the field, and there is no, no holes. There is no way that guy's running through there. And the exceptional players are the ones that can look ahead three, four, five tackles, and they can see where the holes are going to be. And, and they go there. And, and it's a very poor comparison, but in a, in a minute way, that's an illustration of what God can do because He sees all of time. He sees your past. He sees your present. He sees your future. He knows what He wants you to do 20 years from now. And He knows how to get you there. And He knows that hole. And we don't. And that issue of perspective affects whether we follow self or God's plan. When we follow our own ideas and self, we're always seeing a tiny portion, a minuscule portion of what God sees. When I look at a verse like this in prophecy, 
couple of things that it should do. This wasn't just about warning his disciples. Whenever we see prophecy in, in God's word and we see it fulfilled, it's about revealing it to us God's handiwork. It's revealing to us that God is omniscient, that he knows all things before they happen. In this case, it's revealing to us his sovereignty because Jesus could say, this is where I'm going. I must go here. And it happens. And it happens. And we should take comfort in that. That God is sovereign. And as we look at these verses, look behind them and and expand our view of God. Understand who God is. He is omniscient. He is sovereign. Another proof that Jesus is God. He has a plan, and His plan will happen. Amen. So God's plan often frustrates us because He has the ultimate perspective, and we don't. So I was thinking through that. I was thinking through the question, why do we like our plans? Why are we so tied to our plans and we get so frustrated when they don't work out? Any ideas? You can respond back this morning. Control? Okay. Our plans serve ourselves and not God. Why do we like them so much and hold to them so tightly? We think we're right and we know everything. And this is our perspective. And this is God's. But I'm right. <laughs> I know my little hand. Absolutely, though. It's what we do. Because self permeates every part of who we are. Until the Holy Spirit rips that away. Through sanctification. What else? Why do we hold our, our plans so tightly? Security. Security. Absolutely. Security, and, and, and so if I can hold my plans, and if my plans will happen, I'm secure, I'm safe. And who is that security then based in? Self. Self permeates everything. Why else? Pride. Pride. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> we fight that. It's important to be right. I need to be right. I need you to know I'm right. Desire to be our own God. Absolutely. Which goes all the way back again to the fall and the temptation at the fall. Self. Self permeates everything. I just, I just have a couple things that these are not inclusive because your list is much better. Why do we like our plans? One of the reasons is our plans are tied to our desires. It's what we want. And we love to get what we want. It's not just little kids that are selfish in that way. We all are. In Job 17, verses 11 through 15, and I'll read these. And Job, you know, had everything ripped away. And it's interesting, in the middle of his struggle with making sense of that, until God finally says, you can't, you need to trust me. In the middle of that, in Job 17, verse 11, he says, my days are past. My plans are broken off the desires of my heart. Catch that? My days are past. My plans are broken off. My plans are gone. And he calls his plans the desires of his heart. It's tied to his desires. He goes on to say, they make night into day. The light, they say, is near the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, 
And to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? And you see some of the despair coming out. As there is no hope when it's just our plans and our desires. But we like our desires and and our desires are, are sometimes what makes us so disappointed when plans don't work out. And sometimes we think of self as, as overt self, overt selfishness. Well, I'm being selfish today, but self can permeate so much more than that. Think of some of the deepest desires of your heart. And, and what if those things aren't fulfilled? It's hard, and we fight disappointment, and we get angry, and we have to wrestle with that because the, 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 the fight between self and God's will is a battle. You know, as a couple, what if there's unexpected fertility? Oh, we're having a baby. And your plans are gone. And I've seen couples struggle with that. What if there's unexplained infertility? Oh, we can't have a baby. And the desires of the heart are so strong and we struggle with God's will and we get angry at God and we get frustrated with God. What about those that are single that are looking for a spouse? And it's a desire of the heart and it's a good desire of the heart. But that's where Satan can take that and self can step in and it becomes consuming and we get frustrated. We get angry. What about losing a job for no fault of your own? And not being able to find the perfect job. Maybe as grandparents, your desire is that your kids, as they get older, live nearby, that you can see your kids and their grandchildren, and suddenly they all move out of state to different states, so it's hard to follow. And the desires of your heart are crushed. See, self permeates everything, and that's not overt sin, but it's a struggle with self and a struggle with sin of what are we going to do with those things, with those circumstances that send us for a loop. So why do we like our plans? It's tied to our desires. And we like to get our desires. We like our plans because usually our plans are more comfortable now. We rarely make plans that make us uncomfortable now for some future payoff. Although we encourage it. We encourage it with our kids. We encourage it with our our youth. Put money into savings. Go get a good education. There will be a payoff. But all those things are are things that we, we don't like to do now because they're uncomfortable. And in this case, the disciples are like, this is uncomfortable. See, understand behind this, the concept of discipleship is that you follow somebody. You imitate them. And this wasn't lost on the disciples. I'm convinced of this because when Jesus says, I have to be rejected, I have to suffer many things, I have to die, by the way, you guys are following me and imitating me. What's the implication? The disciples have a vested interest in correcting Jesus here. Otherwise, they have to suffer. And they have to be rejected. And they have to die. And that's sort of annoying. (laughs) But if we can change Jesus' mind, 
See, we were sort of expecting to follow him to a palace. Maybe get a nice room. Be in the throne room with him. But we do the same thing. We hold to our plans because we like what's comfortable. But see, Jesus has the end in mind. He has the perspective in mind that will be about His glory. And here's the concept. His plan is about His glory and everyone benefits. When God is glorified, all those with Him benefit. Our plan is about our glory and no one benefits. Yet we hold to it. Point number one, we see in just verse 31 there. Some of you are saying, well, we're never going to get through all the verses. God's plan often frustrates us because He has the ultimate perspective and we don't. So how do we begin to help our children and help our families and help our spouses and our friends see this concept? One way that that we can do just real practically is as things happen to us, as frustrating things happen to us, as our plans change, instead of, I think we're good at saying, okay, what is God doing here? But so many times we fall into the trap of, of teaching others or, or sharing with others, well, this worked out, this, this whole job situation worked out because God ended up blessing me this way. Or, you know, th- this whole situation worked out because this happened in my life. See where I'm going with that? I would challenge you that maybe that's not the best way to approach it. In, because where's the focus still? The focus is still on me and, and what, how I benefited. I finally saw God's greater plan and I benefited. Woohoo! Go God! But what if with our children, we took those situations and talked about what is God doing possibly? How is God revealing Himself? But it, let's say, if our, it, you just had your car totaled. And, and through the situation, you ended up being able, because of your attitude and because of different things, being able to share the gospel with somebody. The, and then it's not so much, well, I got to do this, but do you see how God spread His Word? And God in His sovereignty had a plan and He was working. And we elevate God and we diminish self. And then we start to train ourselves to, to follow God's plan. Let's point the people we're around back to the gospel, back to what God is doing. So God's plan often frustrates us because He has the ultimate perspective and we don't. The second point there, when we challenge God's ways, and we get to verses 32 and 33 that we've already read, when we challenge God's ways, we are acting as agents of Satan. When we challenge God's ways, we are acting as agents of Satan. Let me read verses 32 and 33 again. And he said this plainly. That's actually very important to understand because Jesus, up till now, he's been saying, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. I speak in parables so only some can understand. He's with his disciples, and this literally means he's as clear as he could be. There is no mistaking it, which is why they're so upset. 
And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The nerve. And that word for rebuke is the same word that was used when Jesus rebuked the demons and cast them out. So this is not a light word like, Jesus, maybe maybe we should do something else. No, this is, Jesus, you're wrong and we need to change. (laughs) Okay then. Now perhaps Peter was emboldened by what happened in the passage before. Happens to all of us, doesn't it? Jesus just complimented me. I'm the rock. Church is built on me. And we come to a new place of prominence. And Peter has come to what he probably felt was a new place of prominence with Jesus. Sort of a confidant instead of a disciple. And that gets changed really quickly here. Because even in in walking, interestingly enough, the disciples usually were to follow their rabbi. And, And Peter here is pulling Jesus aside. Is leading him. We have to be careful of that pride. And Peter here corrects Jesus, possibly out of, probably out of his love for Jesus and wanting to protect him. But he really had no clue. He had no place to tell Jesus what his plan should be. But Jesus recognized this for what it was because Jesus' plan was the cross, salvation for all in all eternity who would come to him. The temptation here was directly from Satan. Because if Satan could use Peter to derail the plan, to keep Jesus from the cross, it changes everything. And Jesus sees through this, and he sees it for what it is, an attempt to foil God's plan. And so Jesus responds in verse 33. No, Peter, you really shouldn't say that. No, actually, he turns and sees the disciples behind them and makes sure they're listening. Now, now most commentators, and I would agree with them, think that that's because all of the disciples felt the same way. Peter was just the one with the guts enough to tell Jesus. So they were all frustrated with this plan. They all had a vested interest that this didn't happen. Peter, you go. (laughs) Let's see what happens. And so Jesus turns sees his disciples, and he rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan! It's direct. It's powerful. And I can't imagine Peter hearing that from Jesus. From his master. From the man he just realized was the Messiah. See, Peter and the disciples couldn't have understood yet that a Messiah would suffer. Those things were like oil and water. They could not go together. If he suffered, he wasn't the Messiah. So Peter's twitching as as Jesus says this, and he pulls him aside. And Jesus makes the point that it's either my will or Satan's will. It's nothing in between. If it's not my will, it's Satan's, even if you call it your will. And he goes on to say, for you are not setting your mind on things of God. You don't have God's perspective. You're not following Him. You're not seeing the bigger picture. You're not seeing what God can do. But on things of man. And it's an issue of self again. 
Things of God versus things of man. Things of God versus self. The issue was the temptation to avoid the cross. The answer was let's change your focus to what God is doing instead of what you're doing. Coming back to our plans and our desires and the things that we want and the things that disappoint us and the things that frustrate us in life. Couple things to remember. God's plan wins. It trumps our plan. I, I like the phrase, we plan in pencil and God writes in pen, but I would change that a little bit. We plan in pencil and God has the pen, the paper, the ideas, the way to make it happen. Everything is His. And we're to completely surrender. Completely surrender. So how do we challenge God's ways? Very few of us pull Jesus aside and personally say, let's do this differently, Jesus. But how do we do that? And and don't we do that every time that we complain about something that's happening? Every time we complain about a situation that we're in, every time that we complain about what God has given us or has allowed to happen or what God hasn't given us that we want... See, complaining is literally the idea that I don't like what has happened, it shouldn't have happened, and so I'm going to complain about it, and I'm upset about it. And we are challenging God. Now, there are things, now, it's not that we shouldn't be sad about it. There are horrible things that happen that we should be appalled by. But can God still use sin? Has that foiled God and His plan? No, in His sovereignty, He knew that that would happen. His plan already has, has that into account. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. And so God's plan already takes those things into account. He already knows if you get in an accident. He already knows if someone's sick. and He already knows if there's loss in the family. And He desires to use those for His purposes. And as we complain, we are keeping His purposes from happening. And we are acting as agents of Satan. And Jesus was strong about that. And so I'm challenged. How do I view God's plans in my life? How do I view the circumstances? What image do I give to my children who are at home and see me when I'm tired and see me when I'm frustrated? It's easy when I'm here, when I'm out with people. God's wonderful. I know he's working this for good, but at home when it hurts so bad, what do my kids see? Do they see me surrendering my will? Do they see me surrendering my pain, my hurt? Or do they see me complaining, which is still fighting it? challenge you, make your homes complaint-free zones. When we challenge God's ways, we are acting as agents of Satan. How hard would it have been for Peter to hear that? Let's read on. Rest of the passage, starting at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, and, and understand what's happening here. I, I know I'm interrupting a lot, but 
he's talking to his disciples. And this is a, a vital concept, an important concept of discipleship. One that wasn't just for this situation. It wasn't just for his disciples. It applied to all believers of all time. And so he says, you know what? Everyone, come around. Come around. I need to teach you something. And so he calls the crowd to him with his disciples and he gives this, this profound explanation of what we just saw in the situation before. And calling the crowd with him to his, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then verse 1 of chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And we get a section of Jesus' teachings and in, in, in the book of Mark, we don't get a lot of, of sections of Jesus' teaching. When we do, it's imperative that we take great note of that because Mark is making a point here. And it's the point that's going to be for the whole rest of the book of servanthood. And that following Christ is different than they thought. So point number three there in the battle between self and the gospel Abandon self. Embrace God's plan, even when it is hard. Abandon self. Embrace God's plan, even when it is hard. The, disi- the disciples and us as disciples, we have to abandon a concern for self and replace it with a humble passion for God's will. To be abandoned to the cross. And so we see that suffering is not only Jesus' destiny, it's also that of his disciples. And you see in verse 34 the conditions for discipleship or the instructions to disciples. If anyone would come after me, if you're going to be called my disciple, this is what you must do. The first, deny yourself. And this isn't talking about, oh, I'm going to give up some things. I'm going to give up Facebook. I'm going to give up my, my iPod for, for a week. I'm going to give up exercise for a week. That, that's not what this is talking about. And, and some people have gone there and lived a life where they deny themselves everything in life. This isn't denying yourselves something. This is denying self to what permeates every aspect of our being. It's, it's denying your natural inclinations. It's giving up the idea that I will base decisions on what I want, on what I need even, on what I think is right. It's denying my own will, which is our theme for the year, not my will. This is key verses in that. And so somehow Jesus is saying you must say no to yourself and yes to God and His purposes and His will. And so really denial of self comes down to what's at the center of your life. What's the core of your life? 
What do you value most, self or Jesus Christ? And, and we saw in the passage, and the gospel. Jesus and the gospel. And when we think of what's at the core, it's, it's what motivates us. Out of the heart comes the wellspring of life, comes our actions, comes who we are. And Jesus is saying it's time to start getting self out of the picture, drying the cardboard off, squeezing it out, and getting as much water out as you can. So the, the, the question that, that we ask when we think of deny self is, okay, what motivates my every decision? What motivates me? Can we get to a point of saying, I don't need to have my way? I don't need respect. I don't need to be in charge. I don't need to have my opinion taken. I don't need prestige. I don't need anything except that Jesus be glorified and the gospel is advanced. That's deny self. Let him deny self and take up his cross. And the, the imagery there is that, that um, the, the criminals, as they were about to be crucified, as Jesus had to do, their crossbars were given to them. And the crossbar of the cross they had to carry to the execution site. And it was a sign of humiliation. It was a, a warning to everyone else that they better watch their behavior. And in this situation, it, it's, a, it's a teaching to take up God's plan to take up His way, to take up His will. Deny yourself of your will, take up His will, even if it's a cross. Even if you're shouldering that for a death march. Even if it means being humilified. cross was only used for criminals and slaves. Dying to self means I don't care. I will do what God wants. I will proclaim Him to a world that needs Him. Finally, the last phrase of verse 34, and follow me, imitate me, put it into practice. One author said, it's the shift in the center of gravity in our lives from a concern for self to a reckless abandon to to the will of God. We need to abandon self and embrace God's plan, even when it's hard. Finally, the fourth point there. Accounts are balanced in eternity, so share the gospel now. Invest in what lasts. It's coming back to perspective and having that eternal perspective that the only thing that matters is Jesus and the gospel. It's the only thing that matters. And, and the wording Jesus uses here is wording that's out of commerce language. And so he's using banking and sales language, which is why I say accounts are balanced in eternity, for whoever will save his life here on earth that that makes their priority self here and protection and security will lose it. It won't work. But whoever loses his life for my sake because they're sold out for Jesus and the gospel and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You can gain anything here. You can gain money. You can gain all kinds of romance. You can gain all kinds of success. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Newt Rockney, coach, famous coach, said, show me a good loser and I'll show you a failure. It's horrible. 
He was trying to motivate his team to not be happy with losing. But you see the philosophy. Bumper sticker. He who dies with the most toys wins. Have you seen the other bumper sticker? He who dies with the most toys still dies. (laughs) And that's the reminder that the most toys here means nothing because you have none of that with you in eternity. Accounts are balanced in eternity, so share the gospel now. Invest in what lasts. For what can a man give, verse 37, in return for his soul? When we die, when we stand before the Lord, and we're held into account for our actions, it won't matter what we accomplished here. The only thing that will matter is what we did with Christ. And so are we living for eternity or are we living for 85 years? And verse 38 just digs in and convicts. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation pointing out the need for people to stand up and share the gospel and be bold with their Christianity. In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. How we live here determines our eternal joy and eternal presence with God. Think of that verse when a neighbor walks by. Like, I don't know if I want to talk to him. I'm tired. It's been a long day. Think of that verse when someone says, oh, what did you do this weekend? Oh, I went and saw a bunch of friends on Sunday morning. I was confronted with that this week. Guy was walking by. I'd waved to him as I drove in the neighborhood and he walked back to the house and said, I just wanted to thank you for saying hi. I'm like, what? And I'm carrying some of the commentaries that I was studying throughout the week. And we're talking and, and he said, so um, I see you're studying. And in an instant, this verse came to mind because I went, yeah, I, I'm studying for a talk I have to do. <laughs> And I'm like, Ron, have you learned nothing from God's Word? Has it not affected your heart? So I told him I was a pastor. A little bit of what we were talking about. And he ended up sharing that he was there because his father had passed away in our neighborhood. And he was there helping his mom. And we had a wonderful conversation. And I almost blew it. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. There's a challenge there. It's convicting. But also there's hope there. Do you catch the promise? 
He's coming back. He's coming back. We are not here alone and there is hope of eternity with Him. A phrase that was an early Christian slogan that I think should be our slogan today is for Christ and the Gospel. For Christ and the Gospel. As we go through our week, for Christ and the Gospel. As you go to work Monday, for Christ and the Gospel. As you go home and love your family, for Christ and the Gospel. As you go to lunch today, for Christ and the Gospel. End with verse 1. I'd love to just leave that be and not tell you what it means. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It's a difficult verse. Lots has been written about it. There's six major ways to interpret it (laughs) that we're all held by different commentators and, and leaders. What does it mean? Does it mean that Jesus, he prophesied wrong? That he was talking about the second coming and that some people wouldn't die until he came back and, and well, they're dead. And so maybe Jesus got it wrong. But there's all kinds of problems with that. And number one is, he's God. He knows all things. Scripture is inerrant. And so we look for, for other solutions. What does this mean? Because Mark and, and the Gospels were written later after people had died almost a generation later and they were still okay with this verse, which means they understood it differently. Some of the ways to think about it, one would be that it's referring to the transfiguration. And in all the Gospels, the transfiguration immediately follows this. And that's next week's message out of Mark. Because that was a visible expression, even momentary, but a visible expression of the kingdom of God. Some have said that it refers to the the resurrection of Jesus, that there's the death and then the resurrection shows the power of His kingdom. Some have said it refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Not sure how that one works out, so let's just cross that one off. Some have said the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost because that's where the church saw the power of God. And all kinds of things. I think most likely it is referring to the transfiguration and the resurrection together. That they are going to see through Jesus in both of those events the power of the kingdom in tangible form. But again, the hope there is that the power of the kingdom is real. It's real. 